Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. From the beginning, the war went well. My memory is only slightly faded. Some of us took pocket-sized transistor radios to school to listen to the all-news station updates. Yes, grandchildren. Before the Internet, we had smartphone-sized devices and could, like you, surreptitiously plug into news and music from around the world instead of paying attention to our teachers. It was thrilling to walk through the halls of Harriton High School, bathed in June sunlight, getting the latest battle updates, because the updates were all good. We were Jews, a tiny minority in the school. We were Jews born a few years after the Holocaust, and we were fighting back. Of course, it wasn't we who were fighting back. It was the Israeli Defense Forces. But the identification was so close, it felt like our sweeping victory. We could hardly have imagined the Six-Day War being a turning point in the ever-evolving concept that is Jewish identity. But then, neither could the Israelis have known it would be a turning point in Israeli identity. As I wrote in my book, Emancipation, over the last 230 or so years, starting with the end of ghettoization in Europe, Jewish identity has gone through a massive change. Beginning with the French Revolution and then the Napoleonic conquests, Europe's Ashkenazic Jews were emancipated from half a millennium of legal segregation, sequestration. During the ghetto period, Jewish identity was simple. From deep in Russia across to France, a Jew was a Jew, in education, religious practice, and social custom. Except for a handful of extremely wealthy court Jews, all were more or less the same. Yet within two decades of emancipation, a religious and social reformation was underway inside the Jewish community. The first reformed synagogue opened, and a tentative process of integration with Christian society began. The unstoppable emancipation and integration process constantly changed what it meant to be Jewish. It wasn't always a happy experience. Becoming modern and staying authentically Jewish created enormous tensions within the community. What it means to be authentically Jewish has never really been defined. The term ethno-religious was coined for us, although in modern terms the ethnic difference has faded along with religious practice. Jews weren't the only group talking about authenticity. The Emancipation Era coincided with the creation of the modern nation-state in Europe, what did it mean to be authentically Italian when there was not yet a state called Italy, or German when there was not a Germany? Could a Jew born in these places also qualify as Italian or German? For many, the answer was no. Zionism was a response to these pressures. Its urtext, Rome and Jerusalem, written in 1862 by Moses Hess, an early colleague of Karl Marx, called for a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. With a state of their own, Jews could stand as equals among the nations of the earth, Hess thought. Thirty years later, Theodore Herzl, having reported on the trial of Alfred Dreyfus, came to a similar conclusion and created the Zionist political movement. At the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, Herzl was overwhelmed by feelings about authenticity and his own lack of it. At the peace conference after Napoleon's defeat, the Congress of Vienna, Europe was partitioned, the Ashkenazic world cut in half. Those who lived in the lands assigned to Russia continued to live in ghetto conditions. 
Herzl's family, from Budapest on the Western European side of the partition, had done well in the century of emancipation, but when he met Russian Jews at the Zionist Congress, he found himself awestruck. They had not had the blessings and opportunities of emancipation, but they seemed so strong. They are not tormented by the need to assimilate, he wrote. They are upright and genuine, yet they are ghetto Jews. By looking at them, we understood what gave our fathers the strength to endure the most difficult time. They confronted us with our history. A decade later, a wave of pogroms in Russia led to large-scale emigration to Palestine. The Zionist movement put down roots. Still, most of the world's Jews lived in Europe. Then came the Holocaust. This changed what it meant to be Jewish. Many survivors made their way towards the ancient homeland, which created pressure on Britain to partition Palestine, which led to the creation of Israel. And this, too, as Herzl and Hess foresaw, changed what it meant to be Jewish. And then came 1967. At each stage of this history, what it meant to be authentically Jewish was analyzed again and again. But after 1967, the nature of the subject changed because of what the aftermath of the war meant in Israel. Occupation. The occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. This was not what the founders of the state in 1948 anticipated. They certainly knew there would have to be war at some point to gain more land and to create moderately defensible borders. But they did not expect to have to rule over a restive Palestinian population in Gaza and the West Bank. The founding political ethos of Israel was socialist, egalitarian, and secular. The pressures of occupation quickly shifted the ethos towards ethno-nationalism and religion. The Jewish nature of Israel changed. Israel became more Israeli. A nationalist Israeli identity grew at an accelerated rate, particularly following the near-death experience of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and it is an identity that has been formed under the gaze of the international community. It isn't remarked on enough, but the world has watched Israel become a nation via mass media, and that has created a pressure on the society that other older nation-states have not had to deal with. Imagine if there had been a CNN in 1836 when the United States government, then just 40 years old, had organized the forced removal of the Cherokee Nation from the southern part of the country to west of the Mississippi. The Trail of Tears is how it's remembered today. But imagine people in London and Paris watching the suffering of Native Americans on TV in real time. The outcry would have been astonishing. It would have changed everyone's view of the U.S. and put pressure on the new country to change. It's not impossible to imagine calls for boycotts or for the breaking of diplomatic relations with a country that treats its indigenous people in such a beastly fashion. And this ongoing public evolution of Israeli identity has had a dramatic effect on Jewish identity. Journalist Ari Shavit, whose family connections to Israel go back to the late 19th century when Palestine was still a province of the Ottoman Empire, wrote a book about Zionism called My Promised Land. It's a long meditation on the Zionist reality. For Israel to exist, the Palestinian population had to be pushed off their land. Although he doesn't add, while the whole world is watching. When the book came out, I interviewed Shavit at London's Jewish Book Week. I started by asking, I am a Jewish American. 
Most of the people in the audience would identify as British Jews. We are hyphenates. You are an Israeli. To the world, that means you're a Jew. You're not a hyphenate. Does that make you fundamentally different from us? Shavid was taken aback by the question and never properly answered. I have other Israeli friends who are not so reticent. They think the answer is yes, and they go further. To be properly Jewish, one must live in Israel. They don't mean Jewish in the religious sense. My Israeli friends are secular. But on the question of authenticity, if you want to be fully Jewish, in their view, then you must live in the land of Israel. And many in the diaspora would nod in agreement, even if they won't pack their bags and make aliyah. Today, Israel has replaced religious practice as the core of Jewish identity. Many of the children and grandchildren of my friends who walked around dazed and triumphant through the halls of Harriton High 50 years ago may not have had bar mitzvahs, but they take birthright trips to Israel to discover their Jewish identities. At my parents' funerals, their friends and their children's friends required cards with the mourner's Kaddish transliterated into English. Kaddish, a prayer they should know by heart anyway. But say the word Iran in their presence, and they will react like the ancient Hebrews defending the temple precincts. Point out that Israel is more than capable of defending itself with its hundred-plus nuclear weapons, its high-tech defense industries that set the global standard for protecting military planes and missiles, and you will be stared down. Offer up the fact that in any given year, more Israelis kill other Israelis in a combination of domestic violence and road accidents than Hamas can dream of, and silence is the response. To question a person's faith is always a walking on eggshells process. To question Israel in a room full of contemporary secular Jews is like Giordano Bruno questioning the Trinity in a room full of Vatican inquisitors. Bruno ended up being burned at the stake. The Jew who raises questions about Israel is only metaphorically burned. There are blacklists and informal shunnings. Careers are ruined. The secular Jewish mind, which evolved out of emancipation and created in Western civilization a second renaissance, Einstein, Freud, Marx, whole fields of study like sociology and writers and composers too numerous to mention, has become closed. Closed by orthodoxy. And that orthodoxy is Israel. Fifty years ago, in six days, Outnumbered by a factor of more than two to one, Israel defeated the combined Arab armies. The old city of Jerusalem was reconquered. In America, we celebrated. Jews fought back and won. But what it meant to be Jewish would change in ways we're still trying to understand. And what it meant to be Israeli has become a form of Talmudic questioning, questioning that has no end. And the key question remains, what is the difference between being Jewish and being Israeli? And that's all for this FRTH podcast. Thanks for listening. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming.